Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we revisit the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, examining its enduring impact on Northern Ireland and the complex challenges it faces today. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this panel discussion features David Donoghue, a key negotiator of the agreement, Jerry Foley, broadcast journalist and writer Kerry Nye Doherty. very much. Uh, brilliant to see so many of you here, actually, because it's been such a, a wonderful and a varied festival. We're wondering how many people still have the appetite on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> but it'd be well worth your time, because these are two very strong books, very different perspectives of uh, the Good Friday Agreement growing up in the North. So by way of brief introduction before we go to, uh, if, by the way, those of you who are expecting uh, Philip Stevens from the Financial Times, none of us are Philip Stevens uh, from the Financial Times. <laughs> Luckily, uh, as it turned out, but uh, more than capable and very interesting perspective, which will come from Kerry Neatoherty and her book, Thin Places, which is a very interesting mix of memoir, but your love of nature, the healing power of nature. Mm -hmm. But your story itself, which we'll cover in some detail, uh, is a fascinating one, and it shows the real trauma of growing up during the Troubles. Um, David Donahue then uh, was a very senior Irish diplomat uh, who ended up being ambassador, Irish ambassador, not only to the United Nations, but also to Germany. But crucially for these purposes, he was based in Northern Ireland for a long while and was in the room all of that crucial week uh, when the Good Friday Agreement was eventually signed on April the 10th, 1998. And the last 36 hours, I don't know if we all remember the series with uh, Jack Barra, 24, Kiefer Sutherland, you could make a TV series, because hour by hour, everything changed. And they weren't quite sure from one hour to the next, are we ever going to get this across the line? And that's what is so tense and dramatic and important about this as a record of just how the talks eventually produced an agreement, flawed as it was and remains to this day. My name briefly is Jerry Foley. I'm uh, a journalist. I come from the south of Ireland. Um, I worked for Irish television in the early 80s, but then I spent four years in Belfast between 84 and 88 during a very difficult time in terms of violence on the streets, limited political engagement before heading off to Westminster and spending a lot of time there. First time at Bradford, thank you very much for the invite, uh, but I've done a lot of book festivals, so hopefully that will help me guide here. So let's just start. David, uh, your um, grandfather um, worked uh, in the north, and didn't have a particularly happy time. So just give us a, a brief family tree. And Kerry, if you don't mind, we'll take a little bit longer on your family tree because it's, it's slightly more complicated. Absolutely. Well, I'm delighted to be here as well, and it's great to be here with Jerry and, and Kerry. Um, my, my family tree, well, essentially, the Royal Irish Constabulary was the name given to the police force in the whole of Ireland, we'll say, in the leading up to 1922, so before partition. And uh, my grandfather was born in County Kerry. Uh, they had a, a tradition of posting people who were in the police force as far away as possible from home so that they wouldn't know anybody locally uh, and uh, wouldn't have conflicts of interest. So my, my grandfather, being from Kerry, was posted to the north of Ireland, as it would have been called then. And he got on reasonably well for the first couple of years uh, because he was in areas with Catholic majorities. But then in 19... Oh, sorry, in, uh, uh, indeed in 1922, uh, he had a dilemma. The RIC was being folded up. A new RUC was being established, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, and a new Garda Shikona in the south. So two new police forces reflecting the, the political division of the island in that year. And he opted for the RUC, uh, which, as a Kerry Catholic, was not the best career move he could have made, <laughs> as it turned out, because he then found himself posted to uh, a, a town with a solid unionist majority, and therefore he never made it above the rank of sergeant. Uh, but anyway, that's history, Jerry. And, and just briefly on that, your father grew up in Warren Point, County Down, which became infamous on the day that Lord Mountbatten 
uh, was blown up by the IRA off the coast of Sligo. 18 British soldiers were blown up in Warren Point on the same on the day. Same so that day. gives you the context of where your father was a policeman, uh, your grandfather, the, and then your father couldn't wait to get out of Northern Ireland. Once he hit 18, he, I'm out of here and I'm not going back. Yeah, he was brought up in the OUC barracks. That was the family home. And he, he resented... Uh, to be honest, the treatment of his father, which he could see, and uh, he, this is now in the 30s, 40s, he resented greatly the um, discrimination against um, uh, his father because of being a Catholic from the South, and so it affected my own father's political views, and uh, he never really felt reconciled to Northern Ireland until, in a way, at the very, very end of his life. Now, you perhaps might be able to judge by uh, the grey hairs at either <laughs> side that Kerry is lucky enough to be way younger quite than a us. Lot as well. And <laughs> you were born in 1983, yeah. but if there's a classic illustration of how deep the divisions, you were born in Derry, yeah. the cradle of the troubles and the civil rights movement and everything else, yeah. but your family situation made you particularly vulnerable in a way because... Your dad was a young Protestant, yeah. and your mother was a young Catholic. Catholic yeah. uh, the two didn't mix. They clearly did mix. Yeah. You're the proof. Yeah. And then you had to live the first 10, 11 years of your life in a, over on the Protestant side of the city. So tell yeah. us what that was like. So I'm um, first child of teenage parents, mixed marriage in Derry, 1983 the exact midway point of the Troubles, so the complete halfway point, and um, spent the first 11 years, well, the first seven years, oh, the, sorry, <laughs> from four till 11, um, living in a predominantly um, impoverished um, Protestant housing estate. Um, my parents divorced. Um, you know, there's a lot of intergenerational fractures. You can only begin to imagine the pressure from both sides yeah. in the middle of the troubles. And in the middle of quite an impoverished household. Yeah. And um, we, my mother was obviously Catholic. We, my mother stayed with us in, the, in our family home. And as soon as the Protestant moved out of the house, we were kind of naturally a target. Um, there's sort of increased, there was increased housing need as well during that time. So there was a really um, interesting relationship between, um, yeah, between political views and political needs. So there was a lot of kind of trying to get families that weren't quite wanted in the area out in and around them. And you describe in some detail uh, just how horrific it was. You were only 11 yeah. when your house, you were asleep at night and your house was firebombed because you were now a Catholic family. Yeah. no longer with a Protestant father living in a Protestant area. Yeah. And you were lucky to get out. It was only because a stray cat yeah. had turned up a week. So tell us that story, because you saw yeah. something, your love and, and depth of knowledge of nature and what nature can tell us, that cat was an early yeah. forebringer of what, 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 yeah. what they can tell us. I mean, I've kind of always had this very interesting relationship with wild animals, and it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of guided me through. But our... The petrol bomb was thrown in my window because it was at the back of the house. So it was thrown from the back square by a gang of teenage boys who we knew. And um, they, this kind of stray cat scratched, scratched at my face until I woke up and got, we all got out of the house. And we have a lot more to come into, so I'll just summarise the next year as yeah. um, relatively shortly. So burned out of a Protestant area, yeah. the housing executive had to find your accommodation you're now basically you're a Catholic family again, yeah. so let's put you into the Catholic area yeah. in Derry, the other side of the city. And yeah. even then, um, well, a both, lot of suspicion. Well, both of us, both myself and my brother, were both obviously in a Protestant primary school. So we moved, you know, sort of more or less as the crow flies in a straight line across the river that divide, well, that did divide, still so, somewhat does Derry from Protestant to Catholic. Um, we moved into Catholic area and... Um, kind of had, were able to shield those really interesting questions that children ask each other in Derry <laughs> or did when I was younger about, you know, well, what team do you support and what this and what that and, yeah. you know, those kind of interesting things. Um, and then, yeah, one day um, my brother had been playing football at my granny's church every sort of Saturday and one time the, the, the minibus dropped him off and it sort of said, 
waterside London dairy or something along those lines. So you were identified then clearly as being from the other side. We'll come yeah. back to your next move because I want to bring David back in. So uh, we've got to carry in the sort of um, you know early 90s. Yeah. Now in the mid 80s you had a very interesting job in the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin. You joined in 1975, mm -hmm. did a little bit of work on um, Anglo-Irish relations, including in 1975, your first job was studying maps because there was a possibility that there would be a mass exodus of Catholics from Northern Ireland because of the level of violence following the collapse of the Sunningdale Agreement. So exactly. that brought home to you, you know, things are really bad up there. Exactly, Jerry. I mean, it sounds almost a bit surreal at, at, at this stage, but in the mid-70s, there was a real fear that uh, a very large number of mm. um, Catholics would be forced to move across the border because there would be a complete breakdown of law and order. There was nothing happening on the political front in mm. the mid-70s. There was a sense of despair. And so we were literally planning for the practical implications of maybe 100,000 uh, Catholics coming across. And of course, I mean, I should say, of course, for the benefit of, of, of others, we use the term lightly Catholic. I mean, it's a nationalist, really, but, but it's, it's uh, you know... Just for ease of labelling, yeah. uh, we'll say 100,000 Catholics. Yeah. And uh, so while I was based in, in Belfast in the, in the mid-80s, you were sneaking around Northern Ireland. Well, I wouldn't say... Being yeah. called a traveller yes. because the Department of Foreign Affairs decided we've got to establish better contacts with people across Northern Ireland from all sections of the community. And so you were in your car a lot, not a southern registered car, but trying to build up contacts in real communities on both sides yeah. of the divide. I mean, the background was that we had this Anglo-Irish agreement which was agreed between Margaret Thatcher and Gareth Fitzgerald, the then Irish uh, Prime Minister. In 1985. In 1985. And led to chaos on the streets It meant that basically the Irish government had to kind of up its game in terms of understanding what was happening in Northern Ireland and not merely making speeches denouncing it. So we were really uh, expected to have a much more detailed mm -hmm. knowledge of the various issues on the ground. That meant that, uh, you know, officials like myself were asked to travel around Northern Ireland trying to make contacts. It could be on issues like fair employment or human rights or, or um, economic matters. Uh, in my case, I had to focus a lot on, on, on security and legal matters. But the idea was to build up our expertise so that when it came to making proposals to the British government for how Northern Ireland should be better administered, we would know what we were talking about mm. and we would have the benefit of, of, of actual contact with people on the ground. Now, it tended to be people, frankly, in the STLP uh, um, or priests. But there's, a, there's an amusing story where you probably quite rightly assumed that all your conversations were going to be taped by the intelligence services. So there was one priest that you saw as a good source of information, but he'd come up with a code name for how you would have yeah. these telephone calls. But the cover was fairly quickly this blown. This was a bit amateurish. Uh, he, let's just say that he was in a position where he, he was fairly sure his phone was being tapped, and uh, he proposed that uh, he would... Uh, pretend to be somebody who was interested in, in, in a visit from a vacuum cleaner salesman. And uh, so he, he he gave me a name and said, you'll be Mr. Brown and I'll be Mr. White. I, I, I sometimes get it wrong. And uh, but, but I thought this was a bit bizarre. And I said, is it really necessary? He said, oh, it really is necessary. It's just to fox them, to you know throw them off the scent of it. So then that was fine. A couple of weeks later, I'm ringing, I ring up and I'm talking to his housekeeper. And I say, this is Mr. Mr. Brown. I'm in uh, the area and I have a new vacuum uh, cleaner <laughs> to show Mr. White and uh, so he then comes out ready to jump into his new role and um, and the next thing is he said uh, I said to him when will I come round what about say five o'clock tomorrow afternoon he says oh five you know that's fine no no if a five won't work because I have to say mass then oh, <laughs> so Mr. White on his first outing in the first sentence had said these about say mass so I first out laughing but nevertheless he insisted on keeping up the subterfuge for uh, for a few years after that. So. Um, I, I want to make sure there'll be plenty of time for questions. So I'm, I'm on to now go to Kerry in the early 90s. So um, Derry isn't working on either side of the divide. Your mum has a new partner who comes from a village outside, about 20 miles outside, called Ballykelly. And in your early teens, for about three or four years, suddenly, yeah. despite it being a mixed village, it almost was like an, a normal village. Like you said, people yeah. asking, do you like Nirvana? 
you know, why you're a vegetarian rather than which side are you from? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that, and we were kind of talking about this a little bit in the green room earlier, that um, y you things things don't exist in a vacuum but they also do. So there is this sense of, in my book, I look at the fact that um, context is really important with the troubles. So yeah. things are intergenerational, they are in our blood and in our DNA, but what can happen is we have the ability to very quickly make decisions that can take us out, out with those quite tight constraints. So Bally Kelly was, you know, sort of half an hour on the bus you know, not that far from Derry City. Um, the people who I was then growing up around would have had similar enough context, the same music, the same sort of clothing style, but they hadn't grown up with that level of sort of terrifying claustrophobia that I had. And I was really touched by that, just that there was another way. <laughs> but unfortunately, in terms of your own uh, life development, and there's lots of twists that come after your Ballykelly years, but one of your best friends, a close uh, boy who you were friendly with, yeah. was brutally murdered. Now, it's not clear if there was a sectarian element to it, but it was a, a particularly brutal yeah. uh, event, um, yeah, which horrific. totally shocked this small community in the way in which it happened, yeah. and who was arrested for it. So do you want to just give an outline of that? Because yeah. it shattered that few years yeah. of peace, if you like. Yeah. yeah. Um, so thank you for asking. I think even speaking of him honours him in a way that yeah, I, no, I, feel, clear I feel heart what, glad what for. What a life and soul of the village. He was yeah. a really decent guy. Um, Everybody at the respected beginning, him. And at the beginning, there was a real sort of view that it was in some way sectarian. I mean, the British Army did have a presence in Ballykelly. Ballykelly was a as well as being this kind of somewhat idyllic space, it also did have mm. an element of suffocation and that the, the British army were still mm. posted there. So there was a while where it was thought, but very soon um, a different route was gone down and, and some local people were were held and not able to be not able to be charged. So it's uh, still an unsolved murder. Yeah. Um, and then by this stage, unfortunately, your mother's situation had changed again. Yeah. And one of the stoic and most important characters in your early life was your grandfather. Yeah. Uh, and you went back, your brother and yourself went back to live with him. Yeah. And he sounds like a tremendous old school character yeah. who was just caring, sharing, yeah. had time for everybody within the community as well and wanted yeah. to help people. Yeah. and certainly played a large part in getting you through your totally. A-levels, even if you yeah. had adult chicken pox at the time. Yeah. Things couldn't be tough enough. Yeah, I, um, I had ended up, I have um, quite a bad chronic disorder. So uh, I, that was kind of part of my, yeah. my adulthood. And again, there's a lot of studies done around trauma, how yeah. trauma manifests in the body, how we hold it in our core. But there's a lot in this book about it and, yeah. you know, we'll come on to a bit of it, but, you know, your history would certainly mm. live up to the question of trauma and how long it lives yeah. and intergenerationally how important it is as a legacy, which is something that yeah. on the political side that we're looking at as well. That's yeah. something that I feel really strongly for and I'm a real advocate of um, making space for all that intergenerational trauma holds and actually in the book I look at um, how that... Uh, we feel that we're well removed. People would say, oh, some people who've read my story actually would say, oh, there's no way all of that could have happened to her. You know, she's too young. That didn't really happen, you know. And actually, so there still is this sense of we, we want to remove ourselves from something very difficult. We want to make jokes about it. I was on a panel recently with a, a really incredible writer who said, you know, at his time working with a national broadcaster, if he was Catholic and someone was Protestant and they sort of, it, there was this assumption that, oh, we can all make jokes about this. We can call each mm. other sort of jokey names and this will make us removed from it. But actually, it, it doesn't. We hold trauma. It runs through families. It runs through communities. It ripples. There are people who are 18 who are living in Derry who will still be holding things that the generations before them passed and we're gonna, on we're gonna, in the DNA. Come on to that because that's something that again is very strong in it. But you did hold in things, and you were yeah. seen by some of your friends. Limited pool of friends when you'd gone to university in Dublin and then went to Edinburgh to, to work has been quite cold and that yeah. you reserved so much because of what you've gone through. So I want to just take us a little bit. We'll go from your Dublin experience in a moment to 
back to David, mm -hmm. because if we jump forward a little bit now, you've worked in various uh, aspects of the uh, Dublin Diplomatic Service, but um, by the mid-90s, um, you were asked to head up what became known as the Anglo-Irish Secretariat, which is where a bunch of Dublin civil servants, very controversially, uh, since the mid-80s, were based uh, in basically what was you describe as almost like a quasi-prison uh, on yeah. the outskirts of Belfast within an army barracks. And certainly in the early days, it was regarded as, you know, a hostile presence and you'd have huge protests. But you spent four years heading up that department leading up to 1998. You describe in the book just how mundane, how routine yeah. it must have been because mm -hmm. it was a very, uh, you know, nondescript office block, basically. And you all had to live, eat, sleep, and occasionally we're allowed to walk around the perimeter. That's a joy, yeah. Um, well, in fact, it, it, it was officially in a building called Maryfield, but we called it the bunker. It wasn't actually underground, but it was heavily fortified, and it was on the sort of the, the grounds of Palace Barracks, just outside Belfast. So why were we there? Because it, I go back to the Anglo-Irish Agreement I mentioned a moment ago from 1985. The feeling was that that would only be taken seriously by the nationalist uh, population in Northern Ireland if there, if there was a physical presence of the Irish government in Belfast. So you can imagine that the nationalists welcomed that and the unionists hated it. And that's why, for security reasons, the Irish officials concerned uh, had to be housed in this particular building. It was actually the office. The British, there were British officials there as well, but they didn't have, have to live in the in the same building. They lived outside. So uh, we it was a very nondescript building, like a, very, a prefab almost, and that was home for um, for about maybe. 13 years, I think, from 1985 until 1999. Uh, so, and you were there um, for four years. I was years. there for the last four years, mm -hmm. and I closed and, it. Um, and you couldn't really go outside that. I mean, occasionally you were allowed to go to the beach, but sort of under security. But well, not you to were swim, in, but... Um, no, um, yeah, you were allowed <laughs> to, to sort of walk around. Walk. Exactly. Now, the only good thing which came out of that, and this was a clever move, you happened to bring a really good chef from Dublin. <laughs> well, yes, well, there weren't too many people in the vicinity offering to come in and work in this <laughs> place, which was seen as a den of iniquity. So we had to bring uh, uh, our own, well, chef, is, yeah, we had to bring our own, own cook. He, cook but he, he maybe. worked his way up to be a <laughs> chef. But he then had a lot of time off, so he improved, or they improved their skills over the years. To be honest, there was a serious point. We wanted actually gradually to bring in all sides of the community in Northern Ireland. To, we wanted, as it were, to uh, understand the concerns and issues that they had. When I say we, I meant the British officials as well, that there yeah. was seen to be an advantage in, in opening the doors. We still weren't able to get unionists to come in because they felt that it was politically anathema to them. But we were able to get you know, people from all other walks of life, and that would have been in the later 90s. Uh, and that's why we needed the chef, to be, to be honest. Um, so we're going we're gonna to freeze you in time for a second before we come to the crucial <laughs> events of those final few weeks leading up to the Good Friday Agreement, because I just want to bring Kerry's story up to date, because you were still a teenager in Ballykelly when this was happening, and the sense of excitement yes. that peace in some form was on its way. You got yourself down to uh, Trinity in Dublin in the yeah. early 2000s. Yeah. It was a very difficult time at Trinity for you, basically because of class, I suppose. You didn't yeah. have any support. Yeah. So you had to work at multiple, multiple jobs when other posher, well-to-do Trinity students were having yeah. nice long holidays. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you were from the north. Yeah. And I know a lot of northerners did go to Trinity, but not from your type of background. Yeah. And you found Dublin strange yeah. and expensive. I find it very difficult. And I, um, I think as well, this is where we could sort of bring in that sense of my story is my story, but it also speaks to a lot more worldwide because people are still, and we were talking about yeah. this earlier, people are still experiencing someone in, in, in one part of, let's just say, someone in Hebden Bridge, I was there this morning, um, would, not have any, would not really have an awful lot of clue about some of the things that might be happening in Bradford, for instance. Mm. So there is this sense of... Um, Dislocation. Our, yeah, our stories are so individual and that's why it's really important to make room for yeah, stories that, that hold... Yeah, so Trinity, I found Trinity very difficult. 
a lot of estrangement in my family, as you say. So yes. I didn't have an awful lot of support. It was very expensive living there. We were part of the Celtic Tiger at that stage. You had to move ten times into fairly grotty mm. flats. Anybody yeah. familiar with Dublin? We know it's a very expensive city. I mean, the housing city to crisis was beginning. People were drug addicts were kicking in windows and everything else. It wasn't yeah. your ordinary. No, it wasn't easy. Right. And actually, uh, the other thing which struck me about when on your journey to, to Trinity, it was the first time in ages that your dad had got back in touch with yeah. you and he actually drove you yeah. down to Trinity. And there was that moment where, yeah. you know, for a few hours you were together yeah. again. Uh, yeah. And now in later years you've been able to yeah. spend more time, less so with your mother, I think yeah. it's fair to say. I think that's something that I, I was really keen on in writing the book, um, is that I, um, I feel like the stories that are really important... Uh, right now when we talk about the, the, the legacy of the troubles are um, those stories where families have been caught in something mm. and where one person so it's you know there's that meme of all the lit matches yeah. and um, what's going to happen if you take one match out of that line does anyone have the answer <laughs> <laughs> i'm in teaching mode well obviously the the match the, the fire, breaks. the fire stops, and so there's that she sense teacher, of by the way, so <laughs> <we're getting laughs> sit up at the back. Uh. But it's just that sense of you know, and we're hearing it again and again across the world. Just this idea, especially in parenting, just in the ideology around sort of very good mindful parenting, which is something I'm really into at the moment. How parenting can actually give us a way into working with trauma that is mm. intergenerational and how we hold power to step out. And so in the book, that's something I look at really closely. And uh, towards the end of the book, against your better judgment in some ways, because you said once you had finished in Dublin, you then went to Edinburgh and you were also in Bristol and places. Yeah. I'm never going back to Derry. That's the last place. But you do go back to Derry. Yeah. And you have interesting reflections on where the peace deal signed by and negotiated by people like David uh, has got to 20, 25 years later. I'm keeping an eye on my time because this is about the Good Friday Agreement. And I think 30 minutes in, we should mention the Good Friday Agreement. <laughs> so, um, David, the last, this was going on for months, months, years. And so the final nine months leading up to April uh, 1998 is what the book is about. But let's condense it to those final 36 hours because, mm. as I said at the introduction, it was touch and go. Uh, each side was trying to negotiate the best possible outcome they could. Let's look at some of the key characters, right? Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn, the Irish Prime Minister, uh, they had a good working relationship, although there would be differences of emphasis in the text that they wanted to see through. Bertie Hearn's mother had died earlier in the week, so he was going to funerals back and forth. And in, in a strange way, his bereavement and his willingness to keep coming back earned a degree of respect from the official Unionist Party, led by David Trimble, mm. who would remain negotiators for the Unionist community. Absolutely, Jerry. There's a lot there. I mean, first of all, it wasn't obvious that the two prime ministers would even need to come to the talks. I mean, mm. all going well, um, we would have been able to reach an agreement at a level below. But then uh, things ran into difficulty in the uh, the previous sort of two or three weeks um, and so eventually it was decided that Blair and Ahern should uh, turn up. Um, they hoped to resolve things within a day, in fact a stretch to, to three days and um, uh, I mean, in any negotiation you, you just can't anticipate exactly how it's going to turn out. So it turned out a lot of the time in fact was spent on a set of issues which in the in, in in the in the final scheme of things, were not that important. But we like, spent a, so. I mean, okay, the, the the way in which north south bodies on the island of Ireland. That's to say, uh, um, organisations which would promote, let's say, an all Ireland environmental policy or waterways policy. Yeah. There were a number of things like this which which we needed as part of the agreement. The, the, um, the, there was a practical argument to be made for these north-south bodies, but there was also a political argument. The nationalists wanted the political, uh, they made the political case that if the Irish constitution was going to be changed in order to remove two articles which unionists objected to, then in exchange for that, there had to be something fairly significant by way of institutions mm. on the north-south basis, which would compensate for that. So the nationalists therefore wanted to have a fairly ambitious set of north-south bodies. The unions were basically saying, we'll give you a small amount, but 
but uh, not what you would like. And they also wanted these bodies to be under the authority of the future parliament in Northern Ireland or the Assembly. I won't. No, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack, but just in terms of where we are now, it's, it's kind of uh, important to remember that the people who were sitting around that negotiating table as, as the two lead representatives for the unionist side and the nationalist side, so the official unionist under David Trimble, uh, the SDLP is the constitutional nationalist under John Hume, but really his deputy Seamus Mallon, who did all the negotiation. They are no longer the most important players because by the 2000s, and this is something you reflect on when you go back to Derry, they've been squeezed out by the extremes. The DUP, under Ian Paisley at the time, were not involved in these talks. They were literally outside shouting at the building and holding press conferences when inside, That's right. not only the official Unionist Party, but representatives of the loyalist paramilitary parties were also in trying to negotiate so, a deal. if I may say, Jerry, um, th there were maybe three or four big issues that had to be resolved after the week. One of them is the north-south bodies of autonomy. Another was the so-called issue of decommissioning. That, and, and, and for those of you who don't know the term, that really means what to do with the weapons of terrorist organisations who, strictly speaking, no longer need them because they have decided to go for, for peaceful politics. So... That had been an issue which had been percolating along for a few years before that. We frankly felt that the Uranus had elevated it to a, a, an extent that wasn't warranted. I mean, put, put it like this, if, if the IRA's view was uh, we have volun volunteered a ceasefire in 1994. Uh, and, uh, Broke it in 96. Uh, they, they broke in 96 and then they restored it in 97. But, so their point of view was, we, it was a voluntary act on our part to have a ceasefire. We think it's, as it were, uh, over egg in the pudding to require mm. that we come in with our, with our hands up with the weapons surrendered. I'm not offering a view on that, I'm simply saying that was their psychology. The units, on the other hand, would say, yeah, but the very fact that you are equivocating, that you don't want to hand the weapons over, mm. suggests that perhaps you intend one day to use them again. So these were two valid points of view, but the problem was that the units wanted to make their point of view a condition before anything else would happen. And can I bring Kerry back in to, to jump forward now to when you're back in, in Derry? Yeah. So you went back in Easter 2015. Yeah. And you were reflecting in 2017 uh, as a quite interesting test of was this uh, new peace deal, was, was it going to last? Because you said there was a bombing at the beginning of the year outside the courthouse. Yeah. A few seconds earlier, it would have killed a few lads who were walking past it. Mm -hmm. There was rioting. There was a journalist, Lyra McKee, yeah. who was shot dead when there was uh, rioting going on. And the death of Bart McGuinness, mm -hmm. who was a central figure with Gerry Adams negotiating for Sinn Féin. And your section on Gerry Adams, uh, Ger Martin McGuinness, Ross, is very interesting because you, you say he did change things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, I think it's very important to remember that at every stage of this Good Friday Agreement, the most important thing has been individuals, and I think we we forget this. We very easily we're living in a late capitalist society. We're living in a world that would want us to be replaced by computers. Uh, would want us to be replaced mm. by. Um, organization and boxes and I think that what's very important for the Good Friday Agreement is to remember that the need for a Good Friday Agreement was about individuals it became a thing because of individuals and the work the good work that has happened in the aftermath since peace was was tentatively shaped and is still beholden is done by individuals so what i was reflecting on in the book is the period of time of living in Derry um at that quite turbulent time where peace peace so delicate mm. peace is. anywhere yeah. is so delicate Mm. We have to guard it. We have to guard it as it is the most important thing in existence. And you had a very good line, actually, about McGuinness had gone from planting bombs to planting seeds of hope. Mm. Yeah, mm. And, I, and I feel like, and it's interesting, and lots of, you know, and we all, the thing is, human beings suffer. Mm. They make mistakes, but they also hold power that, that, not, that the more than human race... That the, you know, the more the human species that we that we live with don't hold that power, and I think we hold responsibility through that power. And just to give, yeah, go ahead, Jerry. Could I just echo uh, Kerry's point about about uh, the importance of personal relationships? 
And yeah. I knew Martin McGuinness, and you know, I absolutely agree with Kerry. <laughs> I'm not going to try and sanctify him, but the truth is that Martin, no, Martin McGuinness was quite personable. You, you wouldn't necessarily mm. expect this, but he had relationships across the divide. Uh, I'll give you one simple example. Um, that you may have heard the name of General John de Chastelain, who was a Canadian general who was actually um, central to the efforts to get this decommissioning issue resolved. <laughs> Martin McGuinness struck up rapport with this Canadian general, which you wouldn't necessarily have expected. Mm -hmm. And that did make its own contribution to finally resolving that problem. Another thing would be Bertie Ahern and, and Tony Blair. They established a remarkable rapport, which frankly we don't see nowadays, and I won't <laughs> personalise it. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was remarkable. We, we also had George Mitchell, who was this extremely talented and impartial American senator uh, who was really central from central casting. So we were fortunate that we had Blair Ahern Mitchell with Clinton behind. Uh, Trimble, look, to be honest, was a complex character, David Trimble. He was difficult but to deal with. He was very yeah, he always was. See, yeah. And at several points, two or three points, which I mentioned in my book, um, even those of us who were wary of him had to recognise that he took a crucial fork in the road and without him there would be no Good Friday Agreement. So we were fortunate that there was a sort of a cast of characters well, by today's standards it's very odd almost no women I mean it is very well, there was a mm. uh, the, the Women's Coalition actually several occasions you refer to yeah. them yeah. as honest brokers the Monica McWilliams yeah. and they were uh, really important were. and obviously Mo Molan mm -hmm. exactly Mo was a very special character she was although uh, she was marginalised by Blair at this crucial crucial moment yeah, that was well known in Westminster the difficulty was that she that traditional Uranus uh, eyed her with suspicion they couldn't really take her very exuberant personality and they suspected that she had more of a, a sympathy in the, in the direction of republicanism. They suspected that. But either way, she was a one-off and she also was very courageous. She visited the Mays prison to see loyalist prisoners a couple of months ahead of the agreement. That was quite an unusual thing for a British minister to do at the time. So she deserves a huge amount of credit and I'm glad that in the recent anniversary celebrations uh, yeah. she, she got a lot of that um, I was recently at a I was one of the Northern Irish heroines and um, it was um, at Stormont and I was in the room with all of the women that were part of the community holding mm. within Derry and Belfast during the, the run-up to the agreement and even earlier. And I'll tell you what, you talk about powerful, mm. uh, to listen to women. And I think we need to remember this. If we really think about... Uh, if we think about um, trauma and if we think about conflict and emergency, and if you look worldwide, and I, you know, I, I'm not genderist in any way, and I'm very open to how gender works, but what you will find is generally the people who play integral roles that don't get spoken of that much are women. They're often that. mothers. Yeah, and I let's agree. be really yeah. honest no. about it. There would have been there would have been no Good Friday Agreement without mothers. And I find it quite moving even the mm. fact that a mother died during that, you know, yeah. that someone who was really you know, we've we heard we've heard about this in the Black Lives movement quite movingly um during the pandemic where a number of very violent things happened and, mm. you know, stuff that shouldn't have happened. And if you talk to people, things that moved them were the last words of people very often when they're when they're dying especially in during violence people ask for their mother no, no matter even if they're not even in contact with no. them and I think there's something about trauma and bloodlines and how we can actually mm. really look at care as a way forward because human beings that we want to care for people I'm just going to ask one final question to David before opening it up, and mm -hmm. it's in relation to another mother who played a very important role within the SDLP, and that was Breed Rogers, who yeah. went on to become an MP mm -hmm. as well. There's an amusing tale, as, as the final hours are clocking down, more and more heavy-looking <laughs> men start turning up to the respective delegations to sign off the deal, basically. Yeah, and Green I mean, Rogers had a, had a strange encounter in one of these corridors. Yeah, no, it was sort of slightly shadowy figures uh, suddenly appeared in the last day who were not the normal delegates. So we put two and two together and worked out that uh, uh, both Sinn Féin and then the two loyalist parties were getting additional people in who, uh, who were probably from the more militant side of, the, of, of their movements and who wanted to give their blessing, or we hoped that they would give their blessing to what was about to be agreed. So 
there were these unknown characters and it happened that uh, Breed Rogers at the STLP uh, saw one one gentleman uh, nearby who had a balaclava on him and um, so this seemed to conform to the normal stereotype of the balaclava terrorist. Turned out that he was uh, he, he was just delivering a, a pizza. That, uh, <laughs> it was a very cold evening, it was kind of snowy and he was on his bike and he had to have a balaclava on. So, I just happened to have a balaclava with so, me. <laughs> so she relaxed a bit when she realised somebody had ordered in a few pizzas because we had no food and that's why he was there. But, uh, you need but again, you know, apart from the detail and the tension of those negotiations, you get those wonderful vignettes, as they say, from within the, within the building yeah. and they bring to life just, you know, the reality of what people were experiencing moment by moment. So listen, let's have a few questions. Uh, there is a mic which uh, Theo had. Uh, it doesn't have to be just about, uh, you know, the Good Friday Agreement or where we are now. It can be more about Kerry's book, which has a lot of nature and particularly about birds, I think, the, mm. and moths and butterflies. So it's a, it's a broad discussion. Feel free. Sorry. Uh, go ahead and wait till the mic, please. And away we go. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, hello. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm sorry. I missed the first part of the uh, of this talk. So uh, I was, I was at John Pilger's thing, which is... Ah, uh, come on. <laughs> okay, Whoever heard so, of him? Right, so my impression is that since the you know, the signing of the agreement and so on, uh, the British government has rather let things slide in a way and that um, the uh, forces of progress in Northern Ireland mm. are now being held to ransom by an increasingly powerless unionist who are just sticking their feet in and just saying, look, you know, we'll just um, piss in the well and... I'll, I'll, I'll get an answer from, yeah. from both, uh, because Kerry, I want to start with you, because towards the end of your book, when you're back in Derry again, Brexit yeah. has uh, really damaged intercommunity relations within so, Northern Ireland, and we're familiar with the endless discussions about the protocol, how that was going to work, but you've seen it on the ground, no, no. that those old tensions are beginning to simmer away again. So the north of Ireland was quite interesting in that across the political divide, people voted to remain in Europe. Um, and a lot of the, so there's a lot of alcoholism still in the north. There's a lot of gambling's a big problem. There's a lot of a lot of poverty, um, a lot of teenage pregnancy, and unfortunately a lot of suicide. Bre suicide, breastfeeding rates, rates are at an all-time low. These are intergenerate. These are the traces of trauma. It's a legacy of loss, and a lot of the support, the non-community-run sort of voluntary support, that continues. But a lot of the real support for those kind of issues would have come from Europe rather than the UK. So, of course, that was all pulled. So what's happening in, in impoverished areas, particularly maybe just slightly outside Belfast and in Derry City, is that there's a real... Um, a, a supposed political stance being taken. There's a lot of sort of eruption of, of problems again in those areas, but actually these aren't really political problems with a capital P, even though everything is politics. These are problems of leftover trauma that the, the government, the British I, government, is not really kind of and, and, aware and of. The question made the point about the unionists sort of standing outside the executive president, but if of course Sinn Féin have done it. Sometimes mm. you must be disappointed, though, as one well, of the negotiators. Yeah, I mean, 14 out of 25 years mm -hmm. the Assembly hasn't sat? Nobody could have, seen, could have foreseen Brexit or anything even remotely like that. In fact, if anything, that was one of the, the, the strongest uh, values we had in common in 1998, mm. that both, both countries were in the EU and would be staying there. So the effect of Brexit was was that uh, the, the, the DUP, that's the main unionist party now, um, uh, voted to, to leave the EU. Sinn Féin, the STLP, and we suspect a lot of moderate unionists would have voted to stay. Uh, the latter group felt disenfranchised because the view, you know, the way it was totted up was that uh, the UK as a whole, the, the vote in the UK as a whole was what counted. So the people who had voted to stay in feel betrayed and that has carried over into the relations between the two communities. Frankly, it has carried over into the relations between the two governments because the Irish government clearly uh, 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 was unhappy with Brexit, still is. 
In a more positive vein, I think the current British government is in a more pragmatic mode. The Windsor framework, I think, will help. And uh, at the moment, what we're looking at is a situation in which we're waiting for uh, the, the DUP, led by Geoffrey Donaldson, to go back into the Assembly, to go back into the other institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. And uh, my, my guess is that they will do that uh, in, you know, sooner rather than later, because, frankly, there's, there's nowhere else to, to go. I mean, the, the business community in Northern Ireland uh, are all too aware that investment opportunities are being lost. Um, even people in, 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 in Britain are uh, unhappy at the instability in Northern Ireland. Um, so a, a lot of unionist interests are being uh, adversely affected by the current boycott. Uh, so I would be reasonably hopeful that, in, in that eventually they will go back in. Okay, let's take uh, a few more questions up at the up at the front. If you could, uh, Theo, uh, gentlemen in the front row and then behind you, and then we'll try and get a few more in as quickly as we can. Thanks. Um, so I wanted to ask your thoughts about um, Lord Ashcroft's poll, which seemed to suggest that the majority of people, sort of um, working age or below forty-five, were either kind of ambivalent or supportive of reunification. Um, but once you move to kind of retirement age, then it was sort of heavily against. Um, do you see kind of the younger folks becoming more like um, the older generation well, as they age? Let's, let's, let's ask the youngest member of the panel. Uh, <laughs> and then you can throw in about... These polls vary, of course. I think that's a very good question. And I think that it's contextual and that it speaks to much wider... Um, much wider sort of... A, experiences than just that of the island of Ireland. Mm. So I feel like we're moving into a very interesting position when it comes to what people view as as home, what people view as um, a safe future. It involves things like, I mean, um, you were talking about sort of north-south ideas yeah. in and around, um, so there's a lot of different policies in the north than what there are in the south in and around the protection of, of rivers, for instance, the protection of um, hedgerows. So I think that we're speaking to something that goes beyond just the sense of a, a landmass, something that looks at people are really wondering about where our place is in the, in the climate emergency, in the, in the housing emergency. And we really need to think about what is left over from the Good Friday Agreement that is still, still holding us safely and how do we protect that? Because I think what we need to think about is how different it would have looked, for instance, pandemic or Brexit, mm. had we not got that safe hold of the Good Friday Agreement. How would my mm. generation be, be feeling had they not experienced what it was like to, and, for uh, a while, feel so safe? Briefly on that, and then we'll go to the yeah, I mean, there were many different polls, uh, and I think broadly speaking, it's it's uh, safe to say that there's still a majority in Northern Ireland against reunification, mm. but there would still be a majority in the South in favour of it. However, uh, as I say, polls in themselves can, can vary. The key thing is that I don't think that either government will move towards mm -hmm. the, the referendum which is envisaged under the Good Friday Agreement. It's called, by the way, a border poll. I, I think that neither government will have an interest in moving towards that unless and until they sense almost that there would be a clear majority in favour of Irish unity in both parts of the island. The, the Good Friday Agreement merely says that, the, that there can be a poll, um, but it doesn't say when that should happen. And uh, I think what's more important in a way is what, for example, the Irish government's doing at the moment. They're trying to create a sort of a, a shared island approach, which means that there'll be a lot of practical cooperation between North and South. For example, the Irish government is co-funding uh, the building of a, a motorway in, 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 in Northern Ireland and lots of other things, infrastructure. Including some so, student grants. And, mm -hmm. So there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of practical cooperation, which will, you know, it's valuable in its, in, in, on its own, but of course it promotes a kind of benign approach. It will help, tend to bring the two parts of Ireland more closely together. So in a way, this shared island approach, I think, is 
necessary uh, or needs to be developed before we would pop the question, as it were. And, and, and the, the question will be popped, I think, in heavily prepared and controlled circumstances. I, I think nobody wants a situation in which the question is popped and there's a, there's a negative. I think so. Brexit is a good example of it's easy to ask the question, but working out what it means in reality oh, and in totally. practicality yeah. is very, yeah. very different mm -hmm. business. Sir, you were waiting patiently there. Yeah, the mic is with you now. Thank you. Probably a question for Kerry. I was in Northern Ireland, I was in Belfast from 1971 to 76, partly as a trainee clinical psychologist. So I was dealing a lot, I mean massively, we were working till 10, 12 at night, dealing with trauma cases, psychological trauma. Yeah. Um, I went back five years ago, yeah. and I was aware that the friends I met were still suffering from trauma. And, you know, I can feel it in myself. I mean, I lived in Murder Mile for a time. Um, somebody mentioned that the British government wasn't doing enough about this. I can't see this as being a role for government. I mean, I think to some degree the Good Friday Agreement exacerbated the sense of trauma, particularly of those that suffer from the IRA. But the solution is not, I think, going to lie with simply producing more therapists. It needs something uh, much more radical um, or, you know, thinking outside the box on how to deal with it. I would agree. So, yes, I would be interested in your views on that. I, okay. would, I, would, I would firmly agree. Um, trauma is it's one of my areas of interest. You know, I'm quite, I'm quite into it and I'm quite into how we can move, move in ways that are healing and that are regenerative and that are that lead us towards grace and joy because all flourishing is mutual you know robin wall kimmerer this incredible uh, sort of writer and mother and writes about the natural world and and i suppose that where i come from and if you know if you get a chance to read my book where i come from in my book is just this sense of we every day is a choice as a as anyone, but as a victim of, as a survivor of extreme trauma, every day that I get up is a choice. Every day that I keep going is a choice. And for me, the way through trauma was quite multi-layered. So, and it's fair to say it did take a long time. I mean, that yeah, is the I'm nature of it because yeah, yeah no, every day. It, it's not one day you flick a switch no, and no. suddenly everything is forgotten. Trauma, the whole sense, trauma can't go. So it's that sort of age-old energy can only ever be reshaped. Can't go. So what we do with what we've lived through is how we heal. And we heal, every, we heal anew. And, bo and bodily, a lot of work needs done. So that's why being in wild spaces is really good for me. Swimming with my son, <laughs> you know, laughing, physical touch. And You're a great advocate for wild swimming, yeah, actually. That comes I, out and, I, and not nature as this cure, but just nature as this way back, back to self, back to being. And, yeah. Okay, thanks, thanks for that question. Uh, a few more hands. Yes, uh, down the back, keep you, keep you going uh, <laughs> as well. Um, as I say, it is part memoir, but also there's much more in it, and you've heard parts of Kerry's story, but not all of it. I, it's a, a question for Kerry as a, as a teacher, really. Um, yeah. How... Um, how uh, well, given that you can study history in the UK up to A-level, and even, to, quite honestly, to the end of a, of a history degree, uh, and learn next to nothing I about know. the history of Britain in I Ireland, know, or indeed the wider empire. Yeah. How, um, how important uh, do you think that sort of dearth of knowledge about Irish history is in regards to, um, on, on this side of the, the Irish Sea, in regards to the ongoing political process I, uh, and the peace yeah, process? I you. think story is the biggest healer that we have access to as a race. So the more that we can use story as a way into our darkness and the light that's still there, it's really huge. So like you get sick of having to explain to English, Scottish, Welsh people what happened. You know, you can see Ireland from Scotland and <laughs> people don't know. And I think that actually there was this period of time where there was this sense of, oh no, that's over, we don't want to hear anymore. But thankfully that's actually 
we've come away from that now. So stories from Ireland have really found a good place. But I do feel like we need to use the example of the north of Ireland and bring it the whole way across the world. Yeah. Do we have too much history in uh, the well, south? Fact, That's the other side of it. We uh, always uh, learned about English. I was going to make another point, Jay, which is that in the south, funnily enough, um, uh, although we would perhaps have a greater interest in understanding everything that happened during the Troubles, <clears throat> recent polls suggest that actually oh, there's a lot of ignorance, um, uh, in, you know, younger including people. on younger Still? people. Yeah. give you an example, just one random uh, uh, detail I heard, that I think it is 41% of those uh, questioned in a recent poll in, in the south of Ireland thought that the British Army were responsible for the Troubles. Now, uh, yeah, as distinct from other groups, I think most people would would uh, agree that it was uh, IRA violence which prompted the troubles. But the point is that for a significant number of young people, <coughs> excuse me, in the south to believe that it was the British Army suggests that we have a. I mean, the British Army were not maybe perfect, but on the other hand, they didn't cause the troubles, and uh, so that's just one perhaps tribute example of where there clearly uh, is a lot of history that is missing in the south. I wanted to make another point, as it were, in response to the question here about, about trauma, but it, 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 just to say that during the Good Friday Agreement negotiations, we uh, we, we tried to, to uh, address the issue of legacy and how mm. you would promote reconciliation, and, the, and especially the, uh, the victims of violence, the victims of suffering. And the general view was that we should not, after all, go in for a South Africa-type Truth and Reconciliation mm -hmm. Commission, where they obviously tried to work through many traumas. The feeling was that already some of the more um, um, controversial incidents had been investigated to one degree or another, usually inconclusively, and that if we were then to sort of extend that uh, across the board, that we could be tied up in, uh, in, in such investigations for 25 years to come. So, I mean, I'm summarising... I'm summarising a, a, you know, a long uh, debate, uh, um, perhaps too statistically, but the gist of it was that we would avoid a South African situation which might be ultimately too painful. If it, I'm talking about the investigation of shoot-to-kill incidents, things like that. Instead, we would ask two distinguished people in either tradition, I think it was the Church yeah. of Ireland bishop and a leading Catholic uh, from Derry, um, that they would together come up with proposals for what might be done to promote okay. reconciliation and indeed overcome trauma. We started two or three minutes late, so Sorry. we're going to finish on time, but in two or three minutes, a lady here has a question. Theo, if you could keep your hand up just for a second so that Theo can find you, and I think that'll be wrapping up with a reminder that both books are on sale outside. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would just wanted to ask, in terms of politicians and the real people who are experiencing the troubles, obviously your trauma, living through it as a normal person, was very different to the politician making the decisions or negotiating. How do you feel that they've related to your experience and how do you think they interpreted what... Oh, sorry. So I'll, that's a beautiful question. So I'll give you a really sense? firm example of that. So the Irish government recently ha held, curated and held a commemorative event for the, for the, to celebrate the Good Friday Agreement. And so um, creatives from across the island were invited and actually from the UK, mainland UK as well, to respond to what the Good Friday Agreement meant to them. And of course, there were lots of politicians there as well. And during the event, um, the, the performers, so the people who had lived through it, when, so just say, let's say there were 40 of us that were all performers, there was a screen in the room at the back in the green room, there was a screen there. And the people who, we all went down individually to do our part. And when someone was gone and they were on the screen, the people who were watching the screen, who were crying, who were laughing, who were squeezing each other, were the people who'd lived through it and were talking about it. The politicians were at the bar neck and pints. Now, I, I would say that uh, politicians were killed during Northern Ireland, their troubles, and also had to live with 24-hour uh, protection. And I'm going to finish with a story about somebody else who faced uh, a threat directly to his life and to his family. Because on the, on the very morning, that the good, afternoon, that the Good Friday Agreement was signed off, what happened to you? 
Well, um, I touched on it in, in my book. I mean, it, it, this sort of thing went with the turf. I was mm. I was in a very exposed position in Northern Ireland because I was effectively like the head of the Irish government office in Northern Ireland. So there was a group at the time called the Loyalist Volunteer Force who were not on a ceasefire and they had regularly threatened me, but uh, threatened me in my position uh, in in this uh, Maryfield Secretariat. So they did so again on the uh, on, on the last day. And it was just ironic that at, that at the very moment, it was actually the afternoon, mm. at the very moment when we had got the Good Friday Agreement uh, through and people were celebrating and hugging and kissing, at that very moment I, I, I got uh, news of different kind. And, and uh, so I mentioned that in, in, in the no, book. Well, actually, you, you were told that there was a direct threat to your life and it was going to be carried out as a paid hit job in Dublin. Yeah. That's and right. uh, you had to go down to Dublin and say, we've achieved, to tell your wife and, and family, and now we've got to move yeah. because we're under direct threat of being killed. Anyway, happily, there was a good outcome. So uh, I, a month later, I, the organisation in question declared a ceasefire. So. Well, not that David Dunhood has said no. But I think, I think I misunderstood. I thought we were talking about current politicians because, yes, I would, I would mirror what Jerry said, that mm. I would view the people involved in that in that whole process of that time as being ordinary people. So I think that's the difference, that now yeah. there's a different viewpoint with politics and with people who've lived through it now. Well, look, it's been a great selection of questions, but I'm sure you'll agree it's been a fantastic engagement uh, and such a different perspectives given. So I want to say thank you to Kerry and also to David. Both of them are signing copies of the book outside. I'm going to get thank Kerry you, to Jane. sign, and then I'm going to get David to sign. So Aww. round of applause for them. <laughs> thank you. enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival please subscribe share this episode with others and leave a rating don't forget to mark your calendars as the bradford literature festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of june to the 7th of july 2024